Hello and welcome to Folk This, a podcast about sustainability and traditional cultures. I'm your host, Dr. Catherine Roberts-Parker, and I'm joined each month by my co-host, Ben Edge, as we meet people around the world who are focused on connecting with and preserving the natural world in their folk practice. Well, this is our first episode of Folk This. So, Ben, um, you and I, we met only last year. So I was wondering why you would have agreed to be on this podcast with me about folk culture and sustainability. Yes. So, like you say, we met um, at the Burry Man in South Queensbury, where you came over to me and said that you'd seen the Burry Man in um, the song and music video I'd made about the Burry Man. And anyway, we got chatting and like you do at the Burry Man, you spend a lot of time together because you're there all day following this incredible, strange folk ritual where uh, you have the Burry Man covered in these sticky burrs, burdock seeds, literally a walking, living plant, he appears, half man, half plant. So anyway, we got chatting and I ended up talking to you, didn't I, for a, I think we just, was it another podcast you were thinking about doing? Um, it was this one, but it was sort of like a premature attempt at recording something to do with it. Yeah, so I just kind of... yeah roped you in for an initial chat back then a year that was ago. it and as as we were talking i noticed that you had a what appeared to be a fiddle in the background uh or a violin so i'm, I'm not too good at naming instruments and i happened to be looking that day i'd written in my notebook looking you know need to find a fiddle player for the, an album that i i just started work on so i immediately asked you and you you agreed so we started collaborating musically and then we've been having great Zoom meetings and talking about folk culture and things. And, you know, because you're coming from an Australian perspective, um, you know, and I'm, I'm with my work on the British folklore, I'm, you know, it's leading me to open up worldwide, shall we say, is a journey that I'm about to kind of embark. So I think that the idea of celebrating our our shared humanity across the world through folk culture is kind of what the seed that came out of our discussions and led to this podcast. Well, I I just decided I had to get to the Man Festival. So I, just for a background, um, we'll introduce ourselves properly, I think, in a second. But um, yeah. I was living in the north of England for a period of time. And so I was then fairly close to Scotland <clears throat> where the Man takes place. I had seen your music video and actually my toddler was the one who loves loved that video and oh, really? would ask would ask to see it and sing with it <laughs> over and over again. Really? So, so then it just became <laughs> we have to go. We have to go to the Burry Man yeah. now. And um, I'd come across your your art projects and um, your sort of documentary snippets of your documentary work on on fo- British folk culture. So I was really interested to meet you in person too, if you might be there, even if it's just like we're all in a sort of parade procession together following mm-hmm. the Boomerang Man. I thought that would be a kind of cool way to possibly meet you if you were there. Um, yeah, so on that note, um, maybe we can introduce ourselves. Um, I'll go first. I'm Dr. Yeah. Catherine Roberts Parker. Um, I'm an academic of historical music, essentially. Um, what I call ubiquitous music or really it's folk music from sort of the 1500s, 1600s um, in Britain, um, in the British Isles, I should say. Um, 
really with a focus on sort of theatre, Shakespearean work and, and how sort of oral storytelling and oral musical cultures, communal music, things like singing together, dancing together, how that sort of played out in, in early modern theatre and in other types of performance. The reason I was living in the north of England is because I got funded to research the music of Morris dancing from that period, so from the 1500s to the 1700s, which is a period where we, before I did the work, didn't really know a lot about the music from that period in that type of dance. So, yeah, that's the kind of thing I'm, I'm interested in now. I'm back in Australia, so, all kind, you know, just connecting, I guess, the through line more. Um, from different parts of the world, which is why I want to sort of meet people from different parts of the world doing um, traditional art and, and folk practice. And yeah, so how about you, Ben? Would you like to introduce Yeah, you? so yeah, so let me um, introduce myself. So obviously my name's Ben Edge. I'm predominantly an artist. Um, and my, as my practice has evolved, um, I started visiting folk traditions, which I'll probably tell a bit more about later of how that all came about. And through that, I've been interviewing people, I've been documenting rituals, I've been filming, uh, and then all really to create source material for my paintings. But through that, people have started putting the label on me as well as folklorist, which I'm not quite sure <laughs> if I am or not, to be honest, because it was never yeah. anything I needed to be. But maybe I am, who knows? But, um, but I fundamentally call myself an artist. I'm also a musician. Obviously, I mentioned that we've collaborated and are collaborating as we speak. So my background has just always been creating art, music, and just generally really interested in the creative impulse. And folk culture for me is really like a gateway into looking at the pure, you know, the purity of the human spirit when it comes to creativity. Because there's no, you know, we've said before in discussions that this isn't about that kind of white cube space where there's gatekeepers. You can come into the art world, you can't come into the art world. It's not about that. It's simply about we need to create something for something that we need to do. And that is where art comes from. So for me, it's, you know, it takes us right back to the birth of art. And that is really why I think folk culture resonates with me so much and why I've become obsessed with it, you could say. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. So um, I guess you, you've kind of already briefly mentioned it, but um, how did you actually become interested? Like, I, I've seen a little bit on your website about it, but would you like to share sort of how yeah. you ended up sort of exploring folk culture at all? Um, yeah, yeah, so the, what you mentioned my website really talks about what I describe as my Druid epiphany, but there's a little bit of background that kind of led me to that. So um, it all began really, I would say, family stories for me. So I come from a really rich family of characters with great stories you know from my grandfather's stories about all the the jobs he had whether it was working on the railroad to then when he was at Smithfield's meat market and passing all these incredible almost ritualistic stories around what would happen day to day and the characters and and then you had you know all the animals he used to have um you know snakes and all sorts of exotic animals just in his council flat in London and then my dad had all these great stories so for me, it was like this idea of having this like inherent identity from my family that made you feel, you know, that you were part of something bigger than yourself. And my granddad was also interested in the figure of the green man. So he would carve, you know, faces of the green man into things. And he'd even take us into the woods and like, half scare the life out of us and, you know, the green man following us and stuff. 
So I was interested in that. Then I'd say seeing the creativity of my family, who were all kind of like artists in their spare time or, you know, when it, they just seem to always be creating it as part of our family culture. So through that, I got interested in folk art and the fact that people are out there making art, you know, what Jean Dubuffet described as, you know, uncooked art that isn't for the, the establishment. It's just a personal expression. So I made a whole series about um, outsider art. And it began with a man called Ferdinand Chaval, who was a um, a French rural postman. And in the late 1800s, he, he had a dream that he built a palace in his back garden. Um, and this is a time when being a postman in rural France, you were practically living in poverty. And you'd be walking, you know, huge 10-hour rounds, miles and miles and miles. So he had a dream that he built this palace. And 10 years later, he'd forgotten about the dream, but he slips, he slips over on this unusual looking stone that reminded of his dream and from that moment he actually decided I'm going to make this palace so he started collecting these stones on his uh, on his postal round and he actually built this unbelievably incredible palace in his back garden so I created this whole series about the creative impulse is what I describe it as where I did I depicted outsider artists and looked into what what led them into their creative journeys and through that I started exploring characters in London and looking to the folklore of the streets. And on one day I was on this, just walking through London to try and meet the Raven Master at Tower of London. And he is the, you know, for those of you that don't know the legend, he is employed at the tower to keep the Raven population alive. Because there's a there's a myth that if the Ravens were, you know, I think it's nine Ravens or eight, I forget the exact number, but if there's any less than that number, the crown will fall and the country with it. So we have a, a raven master. So I was on my way to paint his portrait or at least approaching to paint his portrait. And as I came out of Tower Hill Station, I I just saw in the distance a line of um, people in these white gowns like processing. So I ran over to talk to them or just to see what they were doing. And they they kind of assembled to this circle and performed this incredible um, ritual and it was all to do the spring equinox. And that woke something up within me. Like at that point in my life, I didn't mention I was going through a bit of a dark period where I was a bit lost and I'd finished that outsider series and was kind of in between projects. And um, and th that moment was like what I now call a druidic epiphany because it it was what turned me into this world of seasonal culture and also re-plugged re me back into the, the wider context of being human and the idea that we are connected to the earth and we are connected to the planet. And there I was in the middle of the most urban environment you could have, looking out at the walkie-talkie building and KFC and all the stuff that happened to be around me. But there was this group of people that were discussing through ritual how to stay connected to the land. And from there, I went off on this incredible journey of delving into the seasonal customs of Britain and creating a whole body of work in response to that research. Yeah, wow, that's so um, amazing. It's just like, it's so cool to just hear the whole, because I've heard little bits of that, and it's it's really nice to hear all of that. Um, do you know, in a way, my my sort of journey is, is, is similar in that, yeah. like, you were exploring outsider art. Like, I, um, for a bit of pre-background, I grew up playing folk music, tin whistle, mm -hmm. fiddle. I've got an Irish background, but um, not that my Irish family play folk music. They don't. But I... I grew up in regional um, New South Wales in Australia, 
Um, and I just got into folk music because it's wonderful. And I used to just actually um, jam on the tin whistle with one of my very close friends at my house after she had a piano lesson from my mum. So it was like, that was just kind of something we connected in. But then, um, you know, when I went to university, I studied classical piano at Sydney Conservatorium of Music, where I teach now, ironically, folk music I teach now <laughs> at Sydney mm-hmm. Conservatorium. But when I went there, I was studying classical piano and, and um, I had a very sort of typical experience for, you know, the 20, almost 2010s kind of time where I was told very explicitly to put away my other instruments and focus on the piano. And so that's what I did for three years. And then um, I got really into sort of Shakespearean theatre and I did all the, wrote all this music for theatre, um, not Shakespearean theatre actually, for theatre for young people. And um, so yeah, I got really into theatre. I started sort of working on Shakespearean radio plays and then from there I started writing music for children's theatre. So I'd pretty much left classical music behind by then. Um, and then I, um, I got this scholarship to do a Masters of Arts in Shakespeare, uh, in what's it called, Masters of Arts in Shakespeare Studies, it was called, which was run at King's College London and um, the Globe Theatre. So my course didn't give me a chance to like do any performance practice directly, like not like my music degree did. I went and did essentially a literature degree at King's, but we had this course at the Globe. So I got to kind of meet a few musicians who played that music and um, it was all quite interesting. Um, So then from there, like when I picked my PhD topic, which was going to be on a Shakespearean music topic, I um, initially thought, well, there's this idea called sort of rhetoric in, in early modern music. And it's kind of a typical thing to look at, but it hadn't been looked at in a lot of detail around Shakespeare in the way that I wanted to look at it, which was sort of to do with comedies. And so I started doing that. But what happened is, um, if you know Shakespeare's play as you like it, some people may not. Um, it's definitely my favourite Shakespearean play. But as I started to read this play again with the music in mind, um, I started to notice that Robin Hood was really, really prominent. And I was like, why is Robin Hood there? And so I went down this big rabbit hole and people tell you not to get distracted on your PhD, but that's what I did. I was like, no, like I need to know about Robin Hood. I met with medieval scholars who are expert in Robin Hood. And I spent essentially like six months just like learning as much as I could about Robin Hood. And from there I came to discover this whole world of seasonal festival rituals, get togethers, events, whatever you want to call them that existed in the 16th century, essentially, 17th century. And lo and behold, Robin Hood was central to these festivals. And Robin Hood was the centerpiece of this like culture of singing together, dancing together, people getting together to address their fears of the natural world because they didn't know what was happening, you know, in in the world around them. They would address that through song and through being together and being uncertain together, you know, singing away their their fears, I guess, of what's going to happen at the coming harvest, what's going to happen. Um, so I then sort of emailed my PhD supervisor <laughs> and said, okay, my new PhD topic, this is like two years in, by the way, to a three-year, PhD is meant to be a three-year project. 
My new PhD topic is music and festival culture in Shakespearean comedy. <laughs> and from there, I was just obsessed like you. I wanted to know everything. I made this guy into a mentor of mine who was the expert on Robin Hood. He was reading my stuff. I had my other two supervisors who I'd always been working with. And that was my thing. And then um, I mentioned I did this project on Morris dancing recently. Um, because as I got to the end of that, that project on the Shakespearean music, this like huge area of folk dance, it's like, would you agree? It's like the most prominent form of folk dance in the British Isles, Morris dancing. Like it's just in terms of all- Once you know it's there, yes. Yeah, like <laughs> com compared to like, there's lots of folk dance traditions in the British Isles, but Morris dancing is like really prominent because it's essentially an uninterrupted tradition almost. It only was managed to be yeah. stamped out for about 40 years in the Victorian period. Um, but otherwise, it's like an ongoing tradition going back at least to the 15th century, if not. Oh, so um, I just realised that the, this, this area had not been really looked at from a performance perspective in the academic world, and certainly not from a music perspective in the early history. So then I sort of pitched this next project and got that funded and away I went. So from there, I was like, well and truly into folk culture. And so I guess like now that I'm back in Australia, I'm really, um, I'm wanting to connect with my Irish heritage a lot more because as I've looked at sort of colonial folk songs here or um, just even talking to um, Indigenous people here, there's a, there's a lot of um, history of the Irish sort of um, even trying to sort of reclaim their connection to land from here remotely because they were a lot of them came here against their will. Um, you know, they were colonised by the British during the time that Britain was colonising Australia as well. So there's sort of a lot of relationship there and there's a lot to explore musically there. So I'm just sort of looking at moving into that. But yeah, that's kind of how I got got into what I do as well. So, um, yeah, I think there's a lot of similarities. You know, you, you did traditional art study, didn't you? And then you yes. looked at what yeah, well, I, I did that. Yeah, well, I went to art school, yeah. But, yeah. Like, and I was more drawn to the folk culture, really, than the contemporary art, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, found there was something within it, but um, there was, like, some kind of truth within it that I wanted to explore, a universal truth, you could say. Yeah. Well, that's it. Like, I can't meet the people that I was looking into from the 16th century, but um, my real sense that I got, and even in the Shakespearean theatre, you know, you might think of Shakespearean work as being of a certain sort of part of English culture, or, you know, people say that Shakespeare invented the English language and all these grand claims like, you know, like all of the English language that survives is from Shakespeare or whatever, but you've got yeah. these huge claims like that. But at the, at the end of the day, like you look at the music in, in those plays and it is a lot of it is not the music that was being played sort of in private or wealthy context. It was music of the people. And I think that that's the case in many other contexts as well. And so that's sort of how I became interested um really in it is that it's just everyday people getting together and using art or music or whatever 
practice yeah to form connections with each other and with the place that they're in with the world Absolutely. building community yeah and in this this age that we live in now where if i'm honest it's 27 degrees here in sydney at 9 30 p.m and it's 70 percent humidity like this is not normal we don't live in a normal time you know and yeah. folk practice has a lot that it can give us you know to help reclaim um, our connection to land you know actually well when i was doing my phd um I was part of this network called the, um, it's now called the Society for the History of Emotions. Um, and I met this um, Indigenous academic, I don't need to name who she was, but she sort of said to me at the time when she heard what I was researching about Shakespeare and this sort of, um, you know, this this overlooked sort of cultural side of, of Shakespeare's music um, from like music of the people and all of that. She said to me immediately, as soon as she heard what it was, she said, oh, that's so good because you white people need to connect with your land. You know, <laughs> I don't think she'd mind me saying that she told me that, you know, because yeah. it's true, isn't it? Like, absolutely. Um, in our everyday sort of life. I certainly needed that when I, you know, before I stumbled on the Druids, I I, I feel like I'd lost that. That's why it's going to be great to be able to meet some people like some Indigenous people here or in Canada or other people just in, uh, around the world that are connecting to their land through their folk practice because, you know, in so much of what else we do, it's very hard to make those connections and to actually be mindful of where you are and what's going on in the world. And that's part of the problem we have with the climate crisis, isn't it? That we Absolutely. can put it off into the future sometime. But it, like I said, I'm sweating here at 9.30 p.m. It's not in the future anymore. It's just here. No. You know? well, and we need to think... face up to it. And through folk practice, we can do that. And um, yeah, so on that note, um, were you going to say something? But otherwise, I'll ask you another question then. Yeah, well, I know I have some thoughts on that, to be honest. So, yeah. so for me, this is why I've developed this. I've, I've written this folklore activist manifesto because yeah. in in the context of places where being connected to the land has been kind of lost, I do actually see it as part of a kind of activism to yeah. actually go out of the way to reconnect yourself to the land. And earlier you were talking about the idea that people were kind of singing and coming together to create folk rituals and in response to the uncertainty of the natural mm. world. Mm. But in many ways, I also think that is to do with the idea of taking control of your life because yeah, yeah. you can't really answer, you know, the questions of what will come in the future. Mm. But what you can do is say, listen, I'm part of this, this bigger picture. I'm part of nature. So let's just be in tune with it. Let's say, thank you. Let's bless the land. And 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 we believe that by being part of it, it will deliver, you know, and, and that is psychologically a huge boost to try and get through difficult times or, you you know, just knowing that you believe you're part of something bigger and you're part of some kind of world where you can commune with the land and ask for a good harvest or, you mm. know, I just think that's, there's power within that. And um, I think that that is what people are lacking, some kind of feeling of power within the context of being part of the land rather than it's this separate scary thing you know yeah. it's, it's about bridging that gap and i think that by bridging that gap 
you care about it. Like I remember there was a lot of talk when we were younger, uh, when we were younger, when I was in my like teens, should we say, about the ozone layer. Oh yeah. You know, which is now apparently in a better state than it was. But but the point was that to me always sounded like something that's nothing to do with me, mm. you know, something miles away. So like, I, you know, I always say that folk culture, you know, the idea of like, you know, folk culture makes you aware of the land that you live on and care about it. So whether that's by like regional culture, whether you're reinforcing your own kind of history of your region that doesn't connect to the wider you know, British culture of colonialism and stuff, which when I was growing up as a teenager, we rejected that. Um, we we just felt that like I don't want anything to do with it because yeah. it's yeah. so horrific when you were reading into it and stuff. And then I think that was part of the problem too, because everybody just disengaged and almost gave Britain away to, uh, the, mm. to, the, to the kind of... The victims know, <laughs> of colonialism. classes yeah. again, yeah. Mm. Yeah, but I think that like the, the act of you know celebrating regional culture everywhere in the world has their regional culture, and it's mm. why we want to travel. It's why we want to meet different people. There's nothing better than the feeling of meeting someone from a different culture and then learning about their differences, but then also the connections you make, the similarities. That is something really beautiful, isn't it? When you experience that, both of those things. So I think that the, this is what you know this post this this podcast is is about and is going to celebrate but that is actually where the power lies within folk culture and folk tradition for me so it's far more than you know just some kind of you know people are talking in england about the the folk revival which happens every 30 years yeah. which i think cheapens it because yeah. it's like it's like oh heavy metal's popular at the moment oh folk culture oh, yeah. it's mm. ridiculous because it's far it's something far bigger than that so it's not just about getting, you know, a picture of you hugging a stone and putting on Instagram. There's, there's something, you know, deep going on here. And that is what, um, you know, is what excites me. Yeah, wow. Yeah, I I totally agree. Um, and say like my first experience of folk culture in 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 England was going to a wassailing event down in, um, yeah. in Sussex. That's and had a huge renaissance in England now, like yeah. people sailing in like London parks you know it's really come back sorry anyway carry on oh no it's okay um yeah so I went because um without giving too much away I've written about it in a Shakespearean play it features in a play quite heavily um which I will have in a book soon so hold, <laughs> hold tight for that, we'll promote that <laughs> yeah. um but yeah uh we went and my husband's a theatre director and and we we had the whole experience and it, you know it was it was very kitsch and good fun and all the bit under the apple tree was kind of in jest but had the green man and we were like captivated by the green man so i that became a new obsession after i went to that event so similar to you um with green man um but after talking to my husband after you know like it kind of we walked down the hill well down the trail to the orchard we sung the songs and then we walked again and there was this big reveal of the bonfire, right? And it was spectacular. And my husband was just like, wow, this is just like raw theatre. Like they don't even know they're making theatre, you know, kind of what you're saying about it's the birth of art, you know? Yes. They had all the steps that you would use to like captivate an audience in, in a professional theatre show, but they were just doing yeah. it. 
it's where it all began rich yeah and i think <laughs> like the dionysian yes know. exactly yeah, yeah. And, and why can they just do that because it's innate isn't it like uh, within within our humanity is is this absolutely this kind of unified desire to to captivate one another um you know yeah it's part of who we are and it's yeah, and it's, to sort of bring each other together in that kind of spectacular way um absolutely yeah so um i think yeah we've, we've kind of um chatted i think in a lot of ways about what this podcast is going to be about but maybe as like a a two minute wrap up we can sort of both sort of talk about why this podcast actually matters what we're going to do is we've just interviewed each other today we're the hosts but from here on in we're going to be meeting other people who we think are doing really interesting work in the folk community of practice around the world that's to do with um, connection to the natural world or sustainability in some way um so like why why do we think that's important or why does it matter um why i think it matters is we've already sort of said but um to build a global community around this way of working um because it's almost an innate thing that comes out of folk practice isn't it like as soon as you start wanting to practice in some form of traditional music or art or whatever it is the practice you find yourself seeking connection to land and to um to where you're from and and you know and that sort of comes out of it i think organically so i'd like to connect with people from all over the place who are doing inspiring work so we can all know about each other and um build a community through this sort of online techie sort of platform that we have available yeah how about you well you know that makes total sense to me and to kind of add to those sentiments so for me, it's so important to, you know, we, we're in a capitalist world, really, aren't we? And the whitewashing of culture and to fight that and counterbalance that is to celebrate the phenomenon of folk culture, which is age old. You know, it makes you think about all the generations that have gone and sacrificed everything to get us to where we are and they are the people that have kept this alive all that time and it, and we kind of owe it to them and um yeah. and to keep the world in an interesting place you know so we need the diversity of the world and the culture you know imagine living in a world in one note monoculture and we'd lose actually a sense of connection because there's nothing worse than the blandness of everything becoming the same so for me it is about making the connections of what we share but also our own individuality and the, the kind of never ending creativity of the human spirit, which always manages to kind of inspire me and is very much kind of what's at the heart of my work. So for me, it really is like you say, it's about creating a global community of celebrating the diversity of the world and the amazing folk culture that we're all connected through and learning about the lessons that these people can bring, as well as the lessons that our own folk folk culture also brings to the table. So it's kind of like just a, a melting pot of ideas and of diversity and of what we share. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, that's really good. So I'm really excited for, um, you know, the first interview that we do. I won't yeah. give anything away just yet, but um, yeah. stay tuned for many exciting conversations, I think, to be had with um, leading practitioners in various folk practices 
um, leading practitioners in, in sort of folk art and music and all kinds of traditional practices. So, yeah, we'll see what comes of that. But thanks so much, Ben. It was lovely to chat to you today. No, I've loved it. Thank you so much for <laughs> time being your, the first guest that and then turn host. So yeah. it's a nice <laughs> This podcast is produced on the unceded lands of the Gadigal, Bidjigal and Biribirigal people of the Eora Nation in Sydney, Australia. We acknowledge the traditional owners and pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Thanks for listening to Folk This. If you're enjoying the podcast, don't forget to leave us a review and subscribe on your favourite podcatcher. Folk This. We are the land.